Hey folks, Jason Moore here. Today we dive into sports science, altitude training, heat adaptation, sweat rate and fluid management, HRV, training models, perfect periodization, and a bunch of more topics with our guest, Alan Cousins. A couple quick announcements. We just released the Personal Pro Dashboard, which is an advanced data analysis tool for individuals and athletes to analyze their own health and performance data more deeply on the Elite HRV platform. It's called Personal Pro, and there's more info over on EliteHRV.com. We're also about to deliver the first brand new units of CoreSense, which is the finger sensor designed specifically for accurate and convenient HRV measurements. Pre-orders are rolling in for that, so if you want to get yours, head over to EliteHRV.com and check out the CoreSense. Now, let's dive in. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. And we're live. Um, and welcome back to the Elite HRV podcast. Today I've got Alan Cousins with me. And Alan, did I say your last name correctly? That's uh, right, Jason. I'm very, very impressed. It's a good way to kick things off. Great. No, it's uh, much appreciated for uh, joining us here today. And, um, you know, you've got a really interesting website. I've also interacted with several. Uh, experts, so to say, in the industry, and and many of them actually follow you on Twitter and follow your work. So I've been pointed to you several times. So I'm really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, likewise, Jason. I uh, you know I think it's it's always neat we're we're in such a uh, rapidly expanding uh, kind of interest field with with heart rate variability, and uh, you know I, I think I'm probably dealing with things maybe on a more uh, low level with just kind of practical day-to-day stuff with athletes so it's always always good to connect with uh, others who might be coming from a different perspective so I very much appreciate the uh, the chat definitely yeah and so you uh, you know it's a headline on your website is maximal athletic development is that correct yeah it's it's a little little bit of a play so the the name of my business is uh, mad science coaching and uh so uh, I had to come up with some sort of acronym that made sense for uh, for the mad part. Um, <laughs> other people didn't think I was just completely mad. So uh, yeah, I, w- I went with maximal athletic development, and it seemed to uh, seemed to sort of fit fit what uh, what I'm about, and uh, you know, seemed to fit the interest of the the sort of athletes that I work with. They're all pretty they're a pretty serious bunch, um, and and you know, they're, they're all looking to to reach the the zenith. Uh, of their personal uh, performance levels. So. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I can definitely tell by the content that you write and things that that would uh, be the case, not to get too far off right uh, off the bat, but do you find that the people who are striving for that zenith, um, that the same type of information is also useful for people kind of down the ladder a few rungs, like maybe just competing recreationally or maybe as an age group athlete? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, this is really where heart variability comes comes into its own, uh, you know, and uh, the the higher level of athlete that, that we're working with, the more that training is 
the major stressor. You know, the, the when, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, I've come from situations where I'm kind of working in national training centers and that sort of thing. And, you know, everything in the athlete's life is kind of built around training. So, um, you know, when when training is high and when training stress is high, then, you know, you, you see those kind of impacts and you, you know to expect those kind of impacts at those, those points in the training year. But I think for, for recreational athletes, uh, it's, it's a lot less predictable, uh, you know, what, what's gonna, what's gonna crop up that may be a stressor in their life, you know? And I think that, that heart rate variability really, really adds another window and another dimension into that, you know? So if anything, I, w- I would say that it's it's at least as applicable to recreational athletes, if, if not more so. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for that. And I thought it'd be kind of interesting to kick off the discussion with uh, a quote from one of your posts. And you're, you're quoting actually a Twitter poll, so it's a quote of a quote. But um, basically, uh, you had an interesting... Uh, insight in that there was a Twitter poll targeting coaches that seemed to reach a decent number of folks. And it asked, what new skills are you going to learn this year? And the options were data analysis, communication slash sports psychology, biomechanics, and a computer programming language. And that just stood out to me as an interesting subject. And maybe I could just ask you to cover what the results were of that. Yeah, I, uh, I when I when I made that blog post, I couldn't uh, couldn't exactly remember where I first saw the Twitter poll. So I'm sure that um, you know I'm sure that they were in the inner circle, and they'll probably uh, probably reach out and, and let us know. But uh, I think it might might have been Mladen uh, Jovanovic, uh, maybe. But yeah, any anyhow, the the uh, the general kind of uh, summary to, to come out of that was that. Uh, you know, coaches and people in our industry are becoming more and more interested in, in coding and, and, you know, learning computer languages. Um, and I thought that, uh, you know, I, I sort of found that really, uh, really interesting because at the time I was just as, as kind of a new skill and as a hobby picking up, picking up a little bit of programming myself. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily looking to uh, looking to apply it at that point to to coaching and to data analysis and that side of things. You know, it was more like I want to be able to to code a little bit for my website and, and do some of some of that sort of stuff. Um, but but that sort of set me off in, in a new direction. You know, that that uh, kind of exposure to the fact that there's this growing interest in in applying data science and applying analytics to uh, to coaching. And, you know, I think since I wrote that post, uh, that's even more the case now. You know, I, every time I write one of those blog posts, I have people reaching out to me asking, you know, f- for more in- info on where should they get started and what resources do I recommend and, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it's definitely uh, definitely an area that, that is, is really, really hot right now in, in our coaching circles, you know, and I think it's uh, – there's some coaches who are – are really making good use of that and are, uh, are looking to, to expand it even further. Uh, you know, I know you had uh, Paul Lawson on um, a little while back, and I know that that's, a, that's an area that he's really interested in in kind of uh, promoting and, you know, kind of building some, uh, some automation in there and some, uh, you know, incorporating some data analytics chops in, 
in uh, in some of the the kind of traditional training peak sort of stuff, you know. So it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a interesting field. Yeah, and like kind of your uh, synopsis in the blog post as well was that it was interesting that two out of the four choices for coaches in this poll revolved around you know either computer technology or data analysis, and that actually from the responses, the majority of coaches said they were interested in learning more about data analysis specifically over other areas of coaching. Um, So it's definitely kind of a hotbed, like you were just saying, a growing area. And uh, a couple of the folks that we've had on the podcast and other folks that I've uh, interacted with have just kind of offhandedly mentioned that they're taking courses on the side in statistical analyses and different things like that to augment their research on health or their research on performance and other things like that. So um, at this point, not many people can escape it, I don't think. <laughs> no, true. I mean, you know, I, I think, and you're, you're in a better spot than, uh, than most to attest to this, but uh, there, there's new hardware coming on the market all of the time, you know, and new gadgets and with each of these new gadgets, they typically, uh, you know, typically connect to some sort of app or some sort of web portal where they feed information uh, and, and feed data to that. You know, so uh, for for a coach now, it's it's really a, a question of how do we make make sense of all of these little bits of data that are are out there on on the web. And you know, athletes certainly certainly want coaches who are able to to make sense of that and able to. Uh, you know, to, to summarize the, the important insights that come from, from each of those gadgets and each of those, uh, you know, each of those apps and, and web websites as well. So I think it's, yeah, it's really, really tough if, if you don't know that stuff, because, uh, you know, I think every, every year that goes by, it becomes almost an expectation of athletes that the coach is going to be able to talk in those terms. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And so, kind of you you spend a lot of time digging into these subjects and like you mentioned even starting out as kind of a hobby on the programming side or or kind of an interest and then utilizing it in ways that directly apply towards improving performance maybe we could start with a specific example of uh, separating volume and intensity this is something I, I've read of yours that is interesting and it's a it's very tempting to talk about training load as kind of a uh, overall um, catch-all term for you know the various aspects of training that build up to what what people refer to as training load um, volume and intensity being two of those uh, prominently but your work kind of seems to lean towards that there might be value in separating out volume and intensity and other metrics too and that now that we have access to more powerful, kind of analysis tools that it makes more sense to do that in many cases. So, um, you know, how did you kind of come across that and what could you maybe tell us a little more about that? Yeah. I mean, from, uh, from quite some time ago, I've, uh, you know, when I was, when I was still in school, uh, kind of doing, doing graduate, graduate work in, uh, in, in sports science, I, came across some literature on dose response modeling uh, for athletics and you know basically the the at the time it was uh, it was using 
linear mathematical models to uh, to predict performance from training load. And I thought, you know, this is this is really cool stuff. Uh, you know, this is uh, we're we're sort of getting into forecasting, and we're getting into if we know x and y about an athlete then we can we can predict ahead to to z you know to, to what that performance uh might be based on those things and you know I, I thought that this was this was really uh really neat to to see kind of math research meeting uh meeting sports science research and you know fast forward a few years um and sites like training peaks uh, are starting to incorporate these models to some extent, you know, these dose response models from, from Bannister, from Morton, from the big, big hitters in the field. Um, but I think one of the, the big limiters of the models is that back when they, back when they came into play, back when, when they were doing, uh, you know, when the, the forefathers were, were kind of doing the research on this, we were really limited in the amount of variables that we could deal with in, in putting a model together, you know, and, and fast forward a decade, we have all of these cool uh, machine learning algorithms um, that, that have, have kind of been born out of the fact that computers are just so much more powerful than what they were back in, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. So we've got a lot better algorithms now that can deal with, you know, multiple variables, not just you know, X being training load and Y being the athlete's performance level, but X1 being, you know, how well did you sleep last night? X2 being the heart rate variability, X3 being how much volume did the athlete do? You know, so all of these, uh, all of these independent variables are starting to, uh, we, you know, they're starting to get to the point where we can actually work with them and we can actually use them to build better models. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for, for that next phase of things. And I think that we're going to see a lot more accuracy in our ability to predict performance from, uh, from these various input variables. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. That's um, a great insight. And I think one of the things that kind of we've uh, leaned towards, you know, by design or by luck, we'll see, but um, basically is looking at the big picture first and trying to get an understanding of which parts are actually at play and uh, and then zeroing in on which of those parts for each individual uh, plays the biggest role. And, you know, as some of your work mentions too, it's it's dependent on the athlete, their experience and, and their lifestyle. And like you mentioned, uh, recreational athletes especially have other stressors more likely that beyond just training that um, play a significant role in their overall performance and progression. Um, let's, let's talk, I had a note to talk about non-training factors later on, but let's go ahead and dive into that because it's pretty related to what we were just talking about. And, um, you know, basically I just want to ask the question, can athletes afford to ignore non-training factors anymore? Um, uh, yeah, that's that's a bit of a bit of a loaded question. I can see where you're going with that, but uh, you know, <laughs> my take is absolutely not. And you know, that that kind of speaks to what we were just talking about with the modeling. Um, you know, that's it's one thing to assume that given a certain training load, we're going to get a certain performance. You know, but but the reality is that a lot of other factors come into play, and a lot of those factors are related to the recovery of the athlete. You know, it's 
an athlete training 200 tra- TSS per day who's only sleeping five hours a night is going to get a different response from that uh, from that dose than, than maybe an elite who is kind of, uh, you know, designing the rest of their life around being able to, to, to accommodate that load. So, you know, I, I think it's... Uh, especially as training gets more and more uh, competitive, um, you know, and even even amateur training now, you know, we've got uh, the, the Ironman World Championships this weekend and a lot of amateur athletes are competing there. Just just to get to the point where you're qualifying for, for that at an amateur level is a really... Uh, so it's it's a really lofty goal, um, you know. So it's 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 no longer the case where, as an amateur athlete, you can just train whenever you've got the time for it and kind of just fit, fit it in. You know, you you really need to be designing the rest of your life around that. And a lot of that, the rest of your life part is is things like sleep and recovery and stress management and you know all of those things that uh, that kind of come into play as, as things that can be, uh, can be helped and, and things that we can get some visibility on through heart rate variability. Great. And, you know, heart rate variability is obviously uh, a common thread that we talk about a lot on the show and that links me with uh, great people like you. So I'm grateful for that. But in general, what, you know, metrics do you like to look at is is uh, heart rate variability is one of them and what are some other metrics that you like yeah i think that the the subjective uh you know kind of wellness uh wellness scores you know looking at things like how's the athlete ranking their mood how's the athlete ranking their general tiredness um sleep quality is is something that uh that that i think is really important um and then just looking, uh, looking also at um, some of the, the the more traditional training markers, and looking at things like where is the athlete's heart rate with respect to where it normally is for a given workload, and you know things things of that nature. I think all of that uh, all of that kind of comes comes together, and you know generally they uh, generally I think they they all sort of line up, you know, it's, it's rare that, uh, that we see the athletes seven day, uh, heart rate averages in the tank and everything else is perfectly normal. You know, I think, uh, it's, uh, generally mm-hmm. they all, they all kind of line up, but it's good. It's good for the athlete to have that more global, uh, kind of perspective, you know, where they can see, Oh, this is off and this is off and this is off. So yes, coach, it makes sense to, to back off a little bit in the training this week how do you kind of drill into different areas to see maybe what needs tweaking? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, at that point when, when you start to see all of these, these metrics, uh, pointing to the fact that something's amiss, um, that's, that's the time to, to start to have a conversation with the athlete, you know, as to whether there's certain things that might be going on in their life that, uh, that are leading to that. Um, you know, and it's, it's interesting because I think the more that coaches focus on these metrics as opposed to training metrics, the uh, the conversations that you have with athletes are significantly different. You know, the, uh, the 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 number of questions that I'm asking these days about what's going on in your greater life. You know, are you stressed? Are you are you in a good mood? Are you you know what's what's happening with the kids, what's happening with the wife, you know, those sorts of, uh, 
those sorts of questions are definitely coming up a lot more now that I'm more interested in, uh, you know, some of these recovery metrics and general wellness metrics. And you have um, a series on perfect periodization, and I think you take into account um, some of these factors, but a lot of look at the patterns of uh, training. What is that perfect periodization concept? Yeah, so that that sort of uh, that relates to what we were talking about with uh, separating volume and intensity in a model, you know, and uh, if we if we're only looking at training load as as the predictive variable of performance, then in in a periodization sense, we'll tend to try to just keep building that training load through the year, you know, and just just have the highest training loads, uh, you know, immediately before we taper down for competition. Um, you know, if, if we assume that training load equals performance, then the the kind of follow up to that is let's just build the training load as high as we possibly can. But when we start to pull apart some of these variables and, and, you know, look at the relative impact of volume and intensity, we see that maybe that's not the, uh, the, the route that leads to the highest level of performance, um, you know. And, and I think that when we start to look at some of these in independent variables, it, it starts to talk a little bit more to what uh, traditional periodization theorists have, have advocated for a very long time, you know, from, from the Russians back in, uh, back in the 70s and 80s and, and 60s even, um, you know, that, that kind of volume base and then a progressive increase in intensity, even if the overall training load may not be at the highest point right before competition, um, you know, that combination of looking at the volume and intensity separately tends to lead to to higher performance levels uh, for, for most athletes. Okay. And and just, I know this is definitely uh, situational, but, you know, in your experience, does volume or intensity tend to play the bigger role in that equation? Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. And, uh, you know, I think that, I think generally volume tends to be understated in how important it is in, in our world. You know, there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of time crunched uh, folks out there, time crunched athletes who are looking for intensity to, to be very important and would be very happy to hear that they can reach a high level of performance if they are doing so off a low time commitment, but suffering every session, um, you know, so that's, there's a, there's a, uh, a business uh, drive to, to that sort of message, I think at the moment, but, you know, the, my reality or, you know, in looking with what really works for, for high level athletes is that that volume base is, is very important. Um, but that said, it, everyone is different, you know, and, and when we start to kind of pull apart how different athletes respond to volume versus intensity, some definitely respond much better to intensity than, than others do. So I think, uh, I think getting to know the athlete and, you know, experimenting with, with both ends of that equation is, is definitely worthwhile. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, you know, a, a kind of a classic example I like to use of that from the intensity side of things is if you take somebody who um, is typically trained for endurance or done a lot of aerobic uh, zone training, and then you have them do 
a strength and power session that they haven't and they may not have done in a really long time, they'll respond really heavily to that versus if you have somebody who constantly is training that type of activity and then does another strength and power session that's just kind of routine to them, um, you know, they'll get a different response and then vice versa. And there's a genetic component to that. There's usually a training experience component to that, both over the long term or the life of the athlete and in the short term in recent training uh, periods. So, um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. And then my experience also kind of corroborates that volume uh, is understated, so to speak. Uh, Generally, increasing volume slowly over time seems to be much more sustainable than just maxing volume as quickly as possible and that it seems that the um, it also raises the ceiling on how high level of performance you can get to if you're increasing volume more slowly over time Um, that's just a generalization obviously you're going to modulate volume kind of up and down seasonally or in in different periods of training but just over the lifetime of the athlete is kind of what what my research leads me to believe I think, I think that's a really good point, you know, and, and I would agree with that, that, that intensity typically leads to, to quick responses. You know, the, you see changes more rapidly, um, whereas maybe with volume, you don't see the changes as rapidly, but they lead to more stable, uh, more stable changes, you know, so it, uh, that, that, as you said, modulation coming back and forth between volume and intensity over the long term. Um, kind of combines the, the best of those two factors, you know, where you, you're working each year on gradually um, pushing up that stable base of the athlete, but then before competitions, you're giving them that, that turbo boost of, uh, of quality and a, of a little bit more specific work to their event, you know, and I think that that combination works really well. Yeah, and, and from a, a kind of holistic picture point of view too, uh, if anyone has ever <clears throat> looked at like gymnastics training or kind of um, high degree of complexity, <clears throat> excuse me, and ballistic uh, type exercises is that the connective tissue and certain tissues of the body take a lot longer to adapt than just like muscle, you know, what everyone thinks of when when you're exercising is your your prime mover muscles and those actually get tons of blood flow. They tend to adapt more quickly, but all of that connective tissue and supporting structures takes a lot longer to adapt to any type of training. And so when you push up the intensity and volume quickly, especially intensity without slowly, gradually upping the volume, you're also maybe creating a situation where injury is more likely and uh, and things like that. So that's just been kind of some of my experience. Yeah, there was uh, a really, really interesting uh, website a long, long time ago um, by Stephen Seiler, who, uh, you know, now is, uh, is, is kind of a, a big name in, in sports science. And this was when he was kind of just, just coming out of his PhD studies. He had this, this site called the, uh, the MAP site. It was kind of devoted to the physiology of masters athletes and he had a really really good article on that site about the different time course of training adaptations um you know how 
some things, uh, you know, like like that sort of uh, some of the the key aerobic adaptations, uh, you know, increase uh, capillaries within the muscles, increase mitochondria within the muscles, all of those kind of low level adaptations actually take a very, very long time to, uh, to, to, to see a significant increase in, um, you know, and, and things like what you were talking about with the connective tissue. It's a much, much longer time course of, of adaptation to get that to a, to a really good spot than some of the, uh, the, the fancier, more, uh, you know, more, more fun uh, sort of adaptations that, that we look for, you know, increased VO2 max and anaerobic capacity and some of those sorts of, uh, sorts of things that we think about when we think about high-level athletes. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think that's something that we've maybe forgotten a little bit about um, in the way that we structure training and, you know, particularly on the recreational level with all of the emphasis around hard sessions and, you know, everything at threshold or above threshold and interval this and interval that, you know, it, uh, it's very one-sided and it tends to neglect some of those really important, uh, longer time course adaptations that, that are essential to being a healthy athlete. Right. So, um, kind of along these same lines, actually, you have a piece on machine learning and predicting and potentially preventing injury. Um, you know, that's a multi-part piece that you put together. What's kind of the main overview of that? Yeah, I, I, again, kind of going back to uh, that, that same theme of, of looking at uh, being able to, to use some of the new algorithms to look at a whole lot of variables at once and to sort of tease out their, their relative impact on, on, a, on an outcome variable, um, you know, in this case, injury. And... I, I think that the the really significant take home piece of that and and of some of the research that's uh, that's starting to come out from from folks in uh, you know in, in universities and colleges who are developing an interest in in that is that injury is really a, a multi-factorial uh, situation. You know, there's a lot of a lot of potential things that can go into the equation that that lead to an injured or not injured athlete and you know an athlete under high training load if they have a lot of the other variables in place you know if they're sleeping well and if they're not stressed and if they're um, you know supporting the training with good nutrition and, and, and doing things right they can often handle a higher training load and not get injured uh, whereas other people who maybe aren't addressing some of those other supporting variables, um, you know, they can get injured on a, a much lower training load. So it's, I think that that's a really, uh, really interesting and really important avenue to, to direct machine learning research to because, um, you know, fundamentally that's avoiding injury is, is really a, a major step when we're dealing with high-level athletes in, in terms of having a successful season. So I, I think that's, that's key, you know. And f- for me, when I, when I crunched the numbers on my own sample and uh, looked at some of those factors that were most predictive of injury, um, absolute training load was, was definitely the, the most predictive uh, feature. So athletes who were training at very high levels, I think it was uh, more than 100 and 30 TSS a day or something like that, which, you know, in, in real world terms is probably two and a half to three hours of training a day. 
um, those athletes are significantly uh, more likely to experience injury uh, within their season. <clears throat> but the, the second uh, most important predictive variable was actually the self-reported life stress of the athlete. So in terms, of, in terms of mitigating some of those kind of damaging effects of doing a lot of training, if the athlete ranked their life stress um, at, at a low, low level um, on a consistent basis, they tended to be able to handle those high training loads without getting injured. Uh, you know, so I think that's, that's something that uh, is really practical, you know, for, for a lot of uh, recreational athletes who might be burning the candle at both ends and, uh, you know, trying to, to squeeze training into an already very, very hectic and very stressed life with a lot of other, uh, you know, a lot of other stresses in their life, um, family and work and, and those sorts of things. Um, you know, to say that if, if you really want to handle these high training loads, then it makes a lot of sense to, to try to be proactive in, uh, you know, in coming up with, with strategies to manage that stress, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of, of things like yoga and, uh, you know, meditation, you know, all, all of those sort of, uh, uh, maybe, uh, non-traditional, uh, kind of adjuncts to the training to, to try to bring the athletes overall stress level down so they can handle higher training loads. It's mad science, mad <laughs> science. I tell you, no, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's great to hear that. I mean, uh, you've seen the data and I think pretty much folks listening can understand it's, um, you know, if, if we're talking about athletes that are all training two, three hours a day, you know, or, or at very high training loads, you know, you can't really, and some athletes are succeeding at that. So for the ones that are wondering what they can do to uh, eke out a little extra performance, you know, you can't really train more. Um, but you also don't really want to reduce the training total training load because you know others are training at that level and getting uh, results out of that. So typically what I do for the competitive athlete is tell them the first place that you should look before trying to, you know, assuming that you're working with a coach that is putting you on a decent training plan to begin with, the first thing you should look at is the non-training factors to see if you can recover better and get more out of your recovery in those aspects of it, because then you don't have to reduce training when you know that competition might be training just as much, if not more than you already. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and I think there's a bit of a, uh, bit of a social media arms race with, with a lot of, uh, kind of high level amateur athletes, you know, and, uh, it's probably not helped by sites like Strava where, you know, folks are, are posting their best training and uh, you know trying to to really highlight what they're doing and how much they're suffering and what their suffer score is and uh, you know all of these sorts of sorts of ways of looking at it and you know I think a lot of it it's kind of virtual trash talk and <laughs> it, it, yep. it leads to leads to people making maybe some some not great decisions you know like uh, jumping on the trainer right before you go to bed to, to eke out a really uh, really high intensity, high TSS workout, you know, and then wondering why you're not sleeping well and, and not getting the response from the training that you're doing. So it's, mm, yep. yeah, I, I think that the more we can 
kind of uh, put put that message out there that that performance is fundamentally about training and then recovering from that training and adapting to that training and and you know doing all of those other things that uh, that that facilitate that you know the more that we can get that message out there the, the better the better athletes will do and you know the, the less injury we'll, we'll see the less overtraining we'll see um, you know and I think I'd much rather uh, you know see athletes bragging about their heart rate variability score than their suffer score. To to be honest with you, I think that'd be a really positive change. <laughs> I could get on board with that. <laughs> um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It is you know pros and cons of technology. I suppose I I often like to translate things to other areas of life and. You know, just social media in general can create a sensationalized view of what life is supposed to be like when you have enough friends on there and at least one of them is going to be doing something really fun almost all the time. So you almost feel like you're supposed to be having an epic night out on the town every weekend or multiple times a week just to keep up with all of your friends. Um so I, I feel like training sounds like is going the same direction as that. It's you get a sensationalized view. You don't really get the posts from your friends of of just normal training days when you were just you were just filling in the volume that you need to create that incremental adaptation for the next. Uh, yeah, it's not, not, the not next... tweet worthy, is it? If you're just like oh, another another hour of training today, aerobic training. You know, it's not. Uh, yeah, it doesn't doesn't get uh, get a whole lot of whole lot of favorites and likes but I think one of the uh, one of the interesting initiatives that I've seen from from you guys is folks are posting their uh, elite HLV scores and then telling what they're gonna do in in the way of training on the basis of those scores today you know I think that's uh, mm-hmm. that's a much more positive use of, of social media and I've seen a few people get on board with that and it's uh, it's kind of cool, you know. You see the, the little dial is is at a low score, so I'm going to take a recovery day today, you know. Or yeah, all systems are looking good, so I'm going to do a kettlebell workout with X Y Z, you know. And I think that uh, that that sort of message is a really positive one. Thank you. Yeah, that's been it's been really neat to see that kind of evolve. When we first put the social sharing in there, we didn't really know what was going to happen with it. Um, obviously, we we're hoping that people would share it, but it turned out to be really great to see all the different ways and thought processes that people take when they get a different score and everyone has different goals and different backgrounds. So you get just a huge mix of uh, flavors of what people might do on different days. And uh, it's been pretty neat. There was one person who said that they would post or they would tweet their score every day and then they didn't typically tweet a lot of other things. So after like a year, they looked back and they could see almost like a diary of their whole year of their daily thoughts around what they were going to do with exercise or different things on those days. Um, so it's kind of a neat way to to see it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think generally we're still at the point where we're all sort of learning how we can best apply heart rate variability, and uh, you know, to to see that evolving publicly. I think it it. Uh, we're all learning from it, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's good, good stuff. Yeah. And then talking about data analysis, that's going to be, or it, it already is, but it's going to continue to be a huge interest of ours because we're accumulating so much data 
and um, you know, obviously we're we're not uh, doing analysis on individuals or anything, but as an anonymized aggregate of data, um, it's kind of neat to to dig into the trends and patterns and things like that. So we're going to be doing a lot more of that. I'll be reading more of your posts and and continuing to dig into that stuff. They're definitely a big fan of that, you know, and, and I think uh, my, my take at least is that that's where the best sports science is going. You know, it's, it's going away from these N equals 10 subjects, uh, you know, four-week uh, study in, in, a, in a sports science school and, and going out to the masses and, and making use of all of this data that we're, we're accumulating every day because there's so much more power in, in you know, the, the, the huge, huge amount of data that, that guys like, uh, like you're accumulating. I'm sure you're, you're paying for multiple servers and things to, to house all of that data, so we might as well get some good use out of it. Yeah, exactly. It is um, the costs of of infrastructure are going up, but it's definitely going to be interesting. Um, So you, you know, we talked about briefly how you've really kind of dug into programming a little bit and you early on or not early on, but you're recommending kind of before others were that coaches learn a little bit of programming and see if they can get their hands dirty a little bit. Have you seen decent adoption of that? Have people been uh, kind of learning how to do their own analyses and things? Yeah, I, I, I definitely, uh, you know, maybe it's just because people, people uh, you know, who are thinking along a similar line have kind of reached out to me and, uh, you know, we've kind of developed some, some really good relationships and good kind of uh, think tanks, I guess, centered around that. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely a... Uh, an interest in uh, you know coaches getting their hands on on more raw data from a lot of the a lot of the websites and uh, you know kind of making use of of APIs and things like that 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 can talk to uh, you know some of these websites that are accumulating um, athlete data so that we're not just limited to whatever metrics the the website may choose to to throw at us in their interface, but we can actually uh, kind of pull the metrics that we find most useful and, uh, you know, apply some, some data analysis to, to those. So I think, um, I think there's definitely a little bit of a, a little bit of a transition happening right now, you know, where, where coaches are starting to demand more of that and not just uh, being reactive to, uh, to, to the, the websites and software and stuff that's, that's available. Right. And you've put together a bunch of calculators on your site. Um, I'll just list out a few of them. Zone calculator, submax FTP calculator, fatigue curve calculator, swim type, bike fit, run power, strength power, nutritional purization. Um, a bunch of stuff out there that people can play with and even possibly, you know, tweak to fit their specific needs or put them together in different ways. Um, so that's pretty cool. Is that uh, something you're continuing to work on, or? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think uh, since I kind of became interested in programming, um, it's just been been one tinker after the next. And uh, whenever whenever I get an idea, I sort of uh, 
you know, sort of open up a uh, text editor and start coding something up. So I, I definitely uh, think you can probably expect some more of those. And, you know, as you said, a lot of those are uh, a JavaScript or jQuery uh, scripts. So, you know, it's very easy for anyone with, with a little bit of programming savvy just to go into the source code and, and pull those down. And, you know, I'm more than happy for, for folks to do that and to, to play with them and, you know, let me know... Uh, let me know what you do with them and, and how you improve them and how you apply them to, to your own data sets. Awesome. So um, I'm just going to ask you a couple about your a couple of your recent posts just specifically to see uh, if there's any highlights you'd like to share. Altitude training, for one, I know has come up in many circles and I've seen both sides of the argument um, have valid points. What what's your take on altitude training and racing for that matter? Yeah, I think uh, I mean obviously living in Boulder, I uh, you know I come into contact with a lot of folks who who are asking questions. <laughs> should should I go higher? Should I go up to Vale? You know, should I spend some time up there? Uh, the, those sorts of questions, and um, I think my current take is that altitude training is is a powerful stimulus for a lot of people, but it's also a risky stimulus for a lot of people. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's one of those things that individuals respond very differently to. So to do it right, you really need to be monitoring the individual at, at different altitudes to find what the right mix for that individual is, you know, so it becomes, becomes a thing where if you're not going to do it seriously, then it's probably not better, to, you know, it's probably best not to, not to mess around with it. If you're just like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go up to, uh, I'm going to go live up on top of Mount Lemon for, for a month and, and hope for the best, you know, it's, it's doesn't really work like that. It's something that you really want to, uh, you want to have metrics for, you want to have blood work before and after, you know, you want to take a pulse oximeter up there with you so that you have a little bit more uh, visibility into what's going on with your body at that altitude, you know, and I think Boulder is a really good, uh, really good kind of test spot for folks who might be looking to experiment because we're not that high, but we're still high enough that you can get a sense of how your body is responding to, to altitude and how much of a hit you're taking from, from that altitude. So I think it's, it's one of those things where it's probably, a a multi-season experiment where every every year you might try something a little bit higher and just kind of see uh, see what what your metrics indicate and see how much of a response you get from from different strategies. Gotcha. So it's kind of one of those things like, um, you know, if you're, I kind of liken it on the nutrition side to wondering which the best uh, you know pre-workout drink is but you don't eat vegetables regularly. So it's like if you if you have some other kind of bigger picture thing to take care of that maybe you should focus on that first before worrying about altitude training, but when you're getting to those top levels the uh the best of the best have to use all the techniques at their disposal and they also will hopefully take the proper time to prepare and, um, you know, get the right measurements and things to maximize that little extra gain of performance that they might see. 
I think that that's a great analogy, you know, to, to make sure that you're eating your vegetables first. And, uh, you know, I, I think athletes who come to altitude already fit, you know, already at a, a good base level of fitness tend to do better than those athletes who, um, you know, might be using altitude as an escape from their regular stressful life, you know, and then they come up to altitude and they realize that they're just really adding another stressor, the, the lack of, uh, you know, the lack of oxygen up here. So it, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's important to, to put it in the right context, I think. Right. Okay, cool. So not a shortcut or maybe not a recommended shortcut, but uh, when in the right hands, a good uh, extra edge, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Okay. And then uh, this one's kind of related to this weekend. Kona, you, you just published a post about knowing your individual sweat rate. And, and again, uh, another calculator that you've got going here. What, what is it that people should maybe be thinking about when it comes to sweating? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, uh, really hot topic and maybe even a bit of a contentious topic, um, you know, in, in terms of how much fluid we should be replacing, uh, you know, in, in these hot, hot races. And obviously there's, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of fear that, that centers around, uh, hyponatremia, you know, the dilution of sodium within, within the body. And it's, uh, it's a legitimate fear cause it's, uh, you know, it's deadly. It's, it's not something you, you want to mess around with, but, uh, but at the same time, um, you know, when we're dealing with something as extreme as racing an Ironman in conditions uh, that, that Kona presents. I think it's also very important to go into it with a lot of knowledge about, uh, you know, just just what is going on with each athlete's fluid balance and uh, how much they're putting out in the way of fluid per hour, um, you know, and, and the, the implication isn't that they should replace all of that. Um, it's more that we want to pace the uh, pace the fluid loss over the course of the event, and um, you know I think that's uh, it's good to kind of know how much is going out each hour, so that you can you can have a realistic appraisal of um, you know I may not want to replace a liter and a half per hour. I may maybe can't even replace a liter and a half per hour, but when I kind of project it out to 10 hours or however long the race is going to be you also want to make sure that you're you know you're replacing a, a significant chunk of that so i think uh you know i think that's an area where athletes can can really benefit from self-knowledge and can do things it's probably a bit late now but uh but hopefully in in the lead up to kona in their training they've been doing some of these sessions um, you know, in warm conditions where they can get a handle on just just how much fluid is going out per hour so that they they know for themselves how, uh, you know, what a reasonable hydration strategy is for them. Right. Yep. Um, I'm sure folks are aware or have at least heard that you're not supposed to change things on race day. <laughs> so yes, hopefully... Yes, definitely. <laughs> let's let's emphasize that. We'll put, put that... Uh put that in the show notes, uh, maybe in, in bold in a size 20 font, please don't, don't change anything right now on the basis of this podcast Do do what has worked for you, uh, in, in your training. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so on there, you can see with the calculator, you can assess your max sweat rate and know your sweat rate under specific conditions. 
and under conditions of heat acclimation. So there's a couple interesting things you can calculate with that. And uh, kind of like we mentioned, maybe uh, after after you get your legs back from the race and you have a bit of time before the next competition is the time to start looking at different things like this. Um, yeah, certainly. I think that that website, uh, that blog post will uh, will get a few more hits after the race when folks are uh, maybe didn't uh, didn't uh, have have a great hydration strategy for the race and are starting to kind of scratch their heads and and wonder where things might have gone wrong. I think that's uh, that's a good spot to to come back to and to to test in in your specific prep for your next uh, next warm race. Hmm. And, you know, just along those kind of the same lines is the race itself is, I mean, competition in general is a very um, emotionally charging event and um, there's anxiety around it and different things that contribute to stress and, um, you know, performance. And uh, you hear lots of good stories about people getting a second win that they didn't normally have in, in training and or you hear the other side of the coin when people, you know, start to ignore the numbers that they've been training so hard to perfect and and letting things get out of control on uh, different segments of the race and then burning out. The stress definitely adds a, adds another very important variable, you know, and it's uh, in, in talking about the, the risk of hyponatremia. Um, you know, we, we have protective systems within our body that, uh, that are supposed to deal with these things. You know, that there's a reason that if you, if you go out and you have a heavy night of drinking and you might, you know, maybe you're down three or four liters without, uh, any, any sweating, you know, your, your body pees it out. But, uh, but when you throw in stress and you throw in the, uh, you know, the impact of that and what it does to us uh, hormonally and, you know, it's, it's interplay with uh, antidiuretic hormone and some of those, some of those factors that kind of mess with our natural protective abilities to handle these things, then, uh, you know, then, then it starts to become risky. So I think stress management is something that is really, really important for a race like Kona, you know, and I mean, in, in the case of Kona, the stress starts, you know, a week out, a week and a half out, we're just the, just the being there and all of these fit people around you and, uh, you know, the, the hype of the race. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's super important to, to be mindful of that and to, uh, to do your best to, to manage the stresses leading in. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, you're, as we kind of mentioned earlier, your, your data shows that, um, the subjective kind of self-rating of life stress was one of the biggest predictors after total training load of injury um, for athletes. And so um, that's that's important, just as important around competition season as it is in the off-season and other times. Absolutely, yeah, if not more so. I mean, uh, you know, in a race we... Uh... We tend to maybe lose those abilities to to make smart decisions and to to do intelligent things like if something hurts not to continue and uh, you know I think uh, I think stress comes into play with with a lot of that so I think it's it's really important to to keep your wits about you and to to make smart calls on race day. Awesome. Well, Alan, uh, time flies when we're having fun, so I think what we'll do is kind of make this. Uh, a first pass and maybe I can rope you in for another conversation sometime and we can 
collect some questions from folks and dig into different subjects if we want. And, um, but how, you know, how are you with wrapping up right now? Absolutely. That sounds, sounds like a great plan. I'd love to come back and, uh, and chat with you some more. Okay, great. Well, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and folks can find you at alancousins.com. That's A-L-A-N-C-O-U-Z-E-N-S.com. And, uh, you know, you're regularly posting there. You're active on Twitter as well at Alan Cousins. And we'll, I think it might be an underscore in there, but. Yeah, there's an underscore between Alan and Cousins. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and I'll post links to that in the show notes. And as mentioned, if anyone has any questions for Alan, feel free to shoot them over to podcast at elitehrv.com or just ping us on Twitter or anywhere else and we'll connect. But um, this has been great. Um, thank you for bringing your mad science to the podcast. <laughs> there, there will be many, much more mad science to come, Jason. I promise you that. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, maximal athletic development, just, just so everyone knows, right? It's That's crazy. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, thanks very much. And we'll wrap up there. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jason. Hey, folks, if you enjoyed that episode, leaving a review over on iTunes is a big help to the show and helps us attract more experts and knowledge to share with you here. And you can do that by clicking the link in the description of this podcast for the review or head over to EliteHRV.com slash review. Thanks. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.